Well, it is great to see all of you, to be together with you. Great to see those of you who I can see, but I know that there are a number of you joining us today through other means that I can't see. Maybe you are at home watching online, some other location watching online. You might be in the classic service. You might be on the Moon Campus. Wherever you are listening, we're just glad that you're here, glad that we have so many different options that we can lean into, that we can be one church in many different locations as we dig into God's Word today, and that's what I want to do with you. I wonder, as we get started, do you like to go fast? I love to go fast. I think most everybody loves to go fast. In fact, that's been a big part of what has caused or led to a lot of the technology changes that have happened in ground transportation. And the advancements that we've seen over the years in part have been driven by our desire to go faster and faster and faster. When we first got started, it was for hundreds of years, kind of the horse is the best that we had. And horses can go pretty fast, but they can't go fast and far. And so if you wanted to go some distance, you kind of had to slow it down and just kind of take it easy. So then along came the locomotive. And the locomotive was better than the horse and that it could keep going for a long period of time and faster at a sustained sort of pace. So the locomotive actually transformed ground transportation in the 1800s. But it wasn't all that effective for individuals and short trips and all of that. And so then we had the transition into the automobile. And the automobile transformed ground transportation in the early 1900s. Hundreds And Henry Ford came along, and through the Model T, he sort of made it available for the masses so that lots of people could go pretty much anywhere they wanted to go. It speeds up to 45 miles an hour. I had a Ford once, and I got rid of it because its top speed was about 45 miles an hour. It wasn't a great car at at all. Well, now there's a brand new technology that is out there that is also promising to transform ground transportation as we know it. I know that you've heard of it. It's been in the news quite a bit because there was actually just the first passenger test. It's called the Hyperloop. And this is actually the scene of that first passenger test. They didn't go super far, but it worked. And it is now on its way, and people are developing it. There are actually some different companies. And it promises to transform ground transportation because it goes, it's, it's a car like this that you sit in, kind of a pod, and you go through this vacuum tube. It speeds up to 760 miles an hour. 700, that's, that's the speed of sound, essentially. 760 miles an hour. One of the proposed routes is from Pittsburgh to Cleveland. And the good news is that at those speeds, you'd be in Cleveland in 18 minutes. The bad news is that you'd be in Cleveland. <laughs> so maybe you'd like to go somewhere else, like Chicago. You could get to Chicago in less than an hour. You could leave at the end of your workday and go have, go have dinner in Chicago and be back home for the evening news. I think that's going to be absolutely awesome. I'm going to go to Chicago for dinner sometime for just that reason, for that opportunity, if they get around to getting this thing built, which they say might happen within the next 10 years. There could be that 
available. Well, without a doubt, there have been some dynamic transformations that have happened in ground transportation. And I want to talk to you about a transition, a transformation that's happened that's far more dynamic than any of that, that relates to who we are, that relates to our lives spiritually as we think of them. The Apostle Paul speaks to this in, in the passage that we've come to in our Strength and Weakness series. And this passage is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to begin in verse 11, and we're just going to sneak into chapter 6 here today as well. So open up a Bible, get your hands on something where you can follow along. The verses are not all going to be on the screen for you, so that'll be helpful. I'm calling this message today Transformed, and it's actually a pretty straightforward idea that we see here in the text, and I'll point it out to you as we go, but that's not to say that this is something that comes necessarily all that naturally to us. This idea of what it means to be transformed and how we incorporate that into our lives. See, for as much as we would long for the blessings that Paul says is available, for the transformation that can happen, a lot of times we approach it with some measure of skepticism, maybe, but maybe dismissal, maybe denying it, maybe diminishing it. And the result is that we may water down and miss out on the very thing that would fill our lives with the greatest transformation that mankind could ever come to know. It's there. It's available. Paul's going to talk about it. And yet at the same time, sometimes we just sort of push it away in terms of its implication for what it means for us and how we might be able to ultimately live that out. So we need to gain an understanding of what he's got in view here, and he helps us by giving us three essentials to being transformed. If we don't get this, we're going to miss out on this transformation that God has in store for us and the blessing that comes through it. So let's just go ahead and jump into these then. The first facet Paul addresses is being transformed in motive. In motive. And I'll explain what that means as we make our way along. You'll see this beginning in verse 11. If you want to go ahead and take a look, we'll just get started with this verse. It says, since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. Now, he starts there by saying, since then, which says to us, it should be alarm bells that go off, since what then? Since, so it's pointing us back to something that's gone before. And we only have to go back to the previous verse, which is verse 10 of chapter 5, where we looked at this in quite detail last week. You can go back and pick up on that message online if you didn't catch it last time. You can see it on our website there. But in verse 10, it's talking about, Paul is talking about the fact that there is a Bema seat. There is a judgment seat that all believers in Jesus are going to stand before. And we are going to essentially give an account of our lives, or Jesus is going to review our lives, and he's going to reward us or not based on the way that we lived our lives. And that should naturally light a bit of a fire under us to prepare ourselves for that day. It should transform the way that we act in the present as we think about the future. It should motivate us to action. And Paul says there are actually two ways, two different sorts of motivation that the believer in Jesus takes on and incorporates. And the first of those is fear. 
The first of, we just read that here in this verse. He's talking about fear. Now, it makes some sense that, or it makes sense that we might fear as in be afraid when we think about that judgment that is coming because we, we know what we've done. We know what we have thought. We know the actions that we have carried out. And that can be a powerful motivator. And if that moves you to, to take some steps that you need to take, then, then so be it. That's great. But that's not what he's talking about here. That's not the fear that he has in mind here. Notice he doesn't say, we know what it is to fear the judgment. He says, we know what it is to fear the Lord. And fear of the Lord doesn't have to do with being afraid of God. It's not that at all. It's about having an appropriate awe and respect and reverence and honor for God. That's the foundation of the relationship that he desires to have with us. And where that sort of awe and reverence is present, it's a powerful and lasting motivator to obedience, far more powerful than worry or being afraid, that sort of fear. It's far more motivating. See, some of you grew up, just to kind of give you a parallel to this, some of you may have grown up in an environment where your parent or your guardian treated you in such a way that you feared them. As in, you were afraid of them. You didn't know what they were going to do next. You might have been obedient to the things that they were insisting of you, but you didn't do it out of respect or out of love or out of reverence. You did it just out of fear. And the fact is that what happened there, I'm pretty certain, is that you had no developed relationship. It was actually the opposite of that. It pushed you away from, you couldn't wait for the opportunity to get out from under their influence. It built no relationship whatsoever. What Paul is saying here is as we have an appropriate fear and reverence for God, that will be a motive for us that will move us in a direction where our lives will be transformed, where our lives will be changed, and where, will we, where we will be walking in close fellowship then with God. And as Paul goes on, he describes some of the actions that he has taken out of this reverence that he has for God. Sometimes, we've seen this as we've made our way along in this letter, sometimes the things that he did were misunderstood or they were just misrepresented intentionally against him. So he works to explain what is going on, and his motives here are right. And you can see some of what he did. As verse 11 continues, look back at it. It says, what we are is plain to God, and I hope it's also plain to your conscience. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, as some say, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. Paul's desire to serve Christ led him to do all sorts of things for the sake of the gospel, some which were kind of really out there. Some of them led him and put him in situations of danger. Some of them made people kind of look on him and say, you're kind of a fool. Now, he wasn't a fool. It's just that it looked foolish to people who didn't have the same priority of honoring Christ as he did, and he was willing to do whatever was necessary in order to honor God. That's what he's willing to do, and it motivated him. He was motivated by this, this fear that he had for God, this awe, this reverence, this respect that he had for God. And until we get to the place where we feel that same motivation based on the awe and the reverence and the respect that we have for God, we're going to fall short in experiencing the transformation that God has in store for us. So fear is one aspect of how we are motivated for the transformation that comes in motive. The second one is love. 
Fear and love, they kind of sound like they're opposites, don't they? Well, they're not. They're actually very much the same thing. Look at verse 14. It talks about this. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Paul is highlighting the fact that Christ sacrificed his life to free us from sin and death. There is no greater sacrifice that could be made. There is no greater demonstration of love that there ever has been. And so what that means for us is that ought to motivate us to something. What does he say? He says that Christ's love, what he's done, compels us. Compels us. Do you understand what that word means? Because of what Christ has done, we can do no other than to give ourselves fully and completely to him, as Paul is demonstrating through his own life, is what he's saying. See, we're the ones who then take and we start to sort of complicate that. We twist that around. We, we know in our heads what Jesus has done and that it's something amazing. But then we start to bargain a little bit with God. We say, okay, yeah, I'm really grateful for the fact that you did all that awesome stuff there on the cross. But what does that really require of me? How far do I have to go? In fact, sometimes the question we ask ourselves is, how little can I do and still be in good stead at the Bema seat, at the judgment seat of Christ? How little can I do and God is still going to be pleased with me? And we start to carry on this bargain. How little can I serve? How little can I connect with others in fellowship? How little can I give? Do I have to give on the gross or can I just give on the net? And we start to make all of these bargains and ask ourselves, how little can we do? Rather than taking the motive that Christ compels us and saying, how much can I do? How much more can I demonstrate the love and the compassion and the care that I have for God in carrying out his carrying out his word and being obedient to his call on my life. We get it completely turned around. And I get it because we're busy. I understand you've got a lot of different things that you're trying to manage in your life. It's kind of like water towers, right? You've got your Jesus water tower. That's great. But there's a completely separate family tower. And there's a separate hobby tower. And there's a separate work tower. And Paul is telling us what we need to do is allow all of the water from all of those to be released into one common lake of Christ-likeness, and allow the Jesus water to be that which infuses all the rest of who we are, all the rest of what we do, that it would not be kept separate in any way, shape, or form. We do this in other areas of life. There are other situations, other circumstances, other things going on in your life where it just kind of permeates everything. Where if you're feeling, you kind of find yourself thinking about it. This is how it was when I fell in love with Carolyn. It's like I couldn't stop thinking about her. I'd go to class, and I'd be thinking about Carolyn instead of what the professor was teaching. I'd go to work, and I'd be thinking about Carolyn. I love to think, I love to talk about her to other people. And if there was ever anything that she needed, I loved to do it. And it was no effort whatsoever to go and get it done. I still like to do that. In fact, it was just it was probably a couple of years ago that there was a, a situation where there was this one bracelet charm that she really wanted to have because it reminded her of a special trip that we had gone and we'd been on and we had these wonderful memories and it was just kind of a reminder. And so it was at this one particular store and, and 
the store didn't have it. So we stopped at all their other stores whenever we would encounter one, and nobody had it. And so we went online, and we came to discover that it actually had been discontinued like three months earlier. And so she kind of dropped it. But I didn't. I thought, I've got to find one. And if it's only been discontinued a few months, there's got to be some store somewhere that has this charm. And I'm going to find it, and I'm going to surprise her with it. And so I'm calling stores in other states and and in big cities around the country, and, and I can't find it anywhere. Well, then, very surprisingly, I happened upon it in the South Hills of Pittsburgh. And so I was talking to them. I I told them the situation. I said, you've got to hold that for me. Will you hold it for me? And they said, well, we can't hold things. We're not supposed to, but we'll try to until tomorrow if we can. So I said, "That's, that's fine. I'll be down tomorrow. And so I got in the car, and I'm heading down 376, right, to go down toward the South Hills. And I made it to about the center exit, and the transmission went out on my car. Now, it didn't go completely out. I'd later figure out I still had first and second gear. And a sane person would turn around and limp their way back home. But I was an in-love person who wanted to get this thing for her. I wanted to be able to surprise. And I finally knew somewhere where it was, and so I wasn't going to be dissuaded. So I kept going. I had second gear, so I kept going. And, of course, you can't go all that fast in second gear, and so there's people speeding up on me in the, on, you know, on, the, on the highway, and they're honking, and they're kind of screaming out their window and waving at me in an interesting way. And, and finally, I get to an exit where I can get off the highway, and I did. And so now I'm trying to make my way on these back roads I've never been on, down toward through the city, down into the South Hills, so that I can get this thing that I need down there. And I just have this feeling this is just a crazy thing to do. And I was sure that first and second gear were going to go out soon enough, and it was going to be a big problem. But after a lengthy and somewhat harrowing trip, trying not to cause any accidents, They're not getting stopped by the police. I actually made it down to the store. And I went in, and I I explained to them who I was, and it's clear that they'd been talking about me um, because they kind of looked at one another. That's the guy, yeah. And the woman said, I'm really sorry, but we had to just sell it. And I said, what? I said, you have no idea what I went through to get down here. She said, I'm just kidding. We have it. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I didn't laugh, um, but, uh, but I did buy it, and I went back out to the car, which was running because I didn't want to stop the car because I was afraid if I turned it off, it may never turn back on. I wasn't really concerned if somebody would steal it. I was kind of hoping somebody might steal it. I thought it'd be really humorous if they stole it and tried to make their high-speed getaway and found out they only have second gear, but it was still there, and, and so I started my back roads crawl back home. And I actually made it all the way back home. It was like six hours later than I thought I was going to get home. But I did it, and I got it. Now, it seemed kind of a crazy thing to do at several points along the way. I'm thinking, like, this is really foolish. But I wasn't going to be dissuaded because I wanted to bless her, and I wanted, it was out of love. I just felt the desire to, and I was willing to do whatever was necessary. Now, that just happens to be one of my stories. If you've ever been in love, you've got stories of your own. I'm sure that you do. Love can make us do some crazy things. And here in verse 13, Paul was accused of being out of his mind 
It says he's out of his mind because he was serving Christ out of love that caused him to go to extremes for the glory of God. He was crazy in love with God, essentially. And I've been asking myself, and I'd encourage you to ask yourself, how in love, how crazy in love with you or with God are you? Would that describe you and your relationship with God? Are there times that you go above and beyond where you're willing to do whatever is necessary, do things that look crazy in the eyes of other people? Anybody ever look on the things that you do and say, wow, he must really love Jesus. She must really love Jesus because of what she is all about. Well, the transforming motive is fear, awe, reverence, honor, and love. Paul's saying that's what a transformed person, how they will simply live their lives. So I'd ask you, how are you living your life? Is there a demonstration that what's motivating you is the depth of fear, awe, reverence, and that sort of crazy love for God? And if not, I would challenge you to fall in love with God all over again, because I'm afraid that for many of us, we're just in the business of Christian life management. Yeah, I'm a believer, and so I need to put in this much time doing this and this much time doing that, instead of just being in love with God. In the same way that you've fallen in love with somebody else, being willing to be crazy for His sake. We're going to be transformed in motive fear and love as we walk into relationship with God. And then in addition to Paul writing about how the believers transformed in motive, he adds, secondly here, we're also transformed in nature. This is so important. In nature. Paul knows that his own life hasn't always been a model of loving Jesus. Verse 16, he basically admits it. He says, so from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. In the first century, just as it is in the 21st century, people had standards that they used to judge others. And so someone was considered highly regarded, or someone was highly regarded if they were wealthy, if they had power, if they had position. And they were considered to be lowly if they were poor, if they were needy, if they were powerless. And Paul is admitting that he's been applying those sorts of standards in the relationship that he's had with people, in the way that he's looked on others, including Jesus, he says. He says, I basically disregarded Jesus because I looked on him and he's poor. He's powerless. He's uneducated. Paul says, I fell into that trap. He said, even with Jesus, but never again. See, because Paul's heart was transformed, his life was transformed, and he came to recognize that the measuring rod of heaven is different from the measuring rod of this world. That's what he came to know. Heaven values all people regardless of their power or their position, regardless of their wealth, regardless of their race. In fact, we know that Christ had a special heart for the poor and for the needy, for the orphan and for the widow. He says it again and again, and Paul's saying he has learned that lesson, and he's challenging believers in Corinth and believers everywhere, including ourselves, to take on a Christ-like view of other people, a heavenly view of others, not 
giving special deference to someone because they're in a greater position than somebody else. This is such a powerful word for where we live today, right? So much in terms of the world in which we find ourselves. Then comes the centerpiece of the transformation that Paul's getting at, actually, in this whole passage, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. It's vitally important that we'd understand what this new creation is all about. See, this is not something, a new creation in Christ is not something that you ease your way into. It's not that you sort of gently morph from who you've been into this new person that Christ is making you to be. It's not that we're basically the same as we were before Christ when we come to life in Jesus through the cross, but we just now have the hope of heaven. It's none of that. What he says here is that if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are a new creation. He says, the old has gone. Say that with me. The old has gone and the new has come. Completely transformed is what he is saying here. I thought, how can I illustrate this? And here's the best I came up with. All right, think of it like this. How many of you have ever watched Fixer Upper? All right, that's, that's most all of you. All right, it's like Christian house flipping, right? <laughs> that's, that's Fixer Upper in a nutshell. All right, so I actually was flipping through some channels the other day, and I came upon a rerun, and that episode was called Little Shack on the Prairie, which was an appropriate description for it, because here is what they were working with. That's it. That's, that's, the, <laughs> that's the before of you right there that they were working. And when I saw that, my first thought was, light a match. Burn it down. Do not start with this. But of course, their show is all about fixing things up. And so they did. And, and it turned out, okay, you can see it here. It turned out much better than what it was. But the fact is that it still had the core of its former self with the inherent problems that could spring up from that. And it turns out it wasn't all that much longer until the people who had the house sold the house and moved into something new. And it's fine if Chip and Joanna had a vision to try to make something better out of something so old and dilapidated. But thankfully, that's not at all what God does for us. He does not just give a new facade, a new look to an old nature. He has completely transformed the old and has made it new. You are a new creation. Say, Pastor Jeff, why do you keep hammering this so hard? Well, it's important that we would embrace this and understand because we tend to sell ourselves short when it comes to who are we really? What are we becoming? What have we become really? Paul said that the old is gone, but he keeps but it's like we keep inviting it to return. He says the old has died, but we refuse to bury it. We keep inviting it back. We continue to allow ourselves to be slaves to it. You say, well, we've got a sin nature. Yes, we do. But we also have the Spirit of God who is far more powerful. And if we're willing to submit ourselves to the power of the Spirit, we will experience the victory that He desires to come and bring through His strength. We can overcome. We can overcome but we settle for so much less. In fact, we tell ourselves that we're tethered to sin instead of freed to life, and it becomes the sort of self-fulfilling prophecy. And we're not that surprised when we give in to sin. 
We're not that disappointed in what we've done because, well, we have a sin nature. Thankfully, one day it'll be different, but for now, we're selling ourselves short. We are new creations with new abilities and new opportunities. That's not pride. That's belief. That's faith. And I believe that it's time for for us to set our eyes higher, to get up every morning and say, I'm a new creation in Christ. Live like a new creation. Live like one who has been completely and totally transformed. Don't give yourself a pass. Don't say, well, the devil made me do it. Don't say, well, I've got a sin nature. Say, I've got a spirit nature inside of me, and I can rise above, and I'm going to hold myself to a higher standard, and I'm going to live in the victory and the strength that God provides. Because we've been transformed in nature. Now, there's one more aspect of this transformation that happens for the believer in Christ, and that's that we've also been transformed in hope. In hope. The end of 2 Corinthians 5 offers tremendous encouragement to anybody who's looking for hope, anybody who's lost hope, listen to the way that Paul writes this beginning in verse 18. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What an awesome verse that is. In fact, what an awesome collection of verses. Those are right there. They're rich, they're profound, they're deep, but they're not complicated. All right? There's no reason for us to walk away wondering, what does that mean? What's he talking about here? Not at all. He's basically just making a couple of points, but he keeps hammering them. He keeps saying them different ways. He says them over and over and over again. Part of it is about this idea of being reconciled to God. We know that that's key to this passage because he's mentioned it here like five times in those four verses that we just read. Reconciliation is being brought back together. Two parties that have been separated, that are at odds essentially, that might have some sort of rift between them, are brought together. And that's what's required for us and God. We are separated from one another because of our sin and because of the fact that God is holy. So for there to be a relationship, we need something that's going to take that sin problem out of the way. That's going to allow us to be reconciled. And that's what the gospel is all about. It's God reconciling us to himself. So what does Paul want us to know about this reconciliation? A couple of things. First of all, that it is not our doing. Virtually every religion is men and women trying to earn their way to God, trying to get themselves to God, usually through good works or some sort of thing of that nature. That's what religion is all about. We have this natural sense that we need to try to prove our righteousness before God. We call that Jesus plus something. But you know that for us to experience the fullness of what God has in store for us, there's nothing that we add to it. It's Jesus plus nothing. Absolutely. That's what it 
is. That's what's intended to be. And Paul is making that same point here as he teaches us about reconciliation. Verse 18 says it is God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. Verse 19, God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. Reconciliation is not us reaching to God, it's God reaching to us. Verse 20 doesn't tell us to reconcile ourselves to God, but to be reconciled. It is his work. Paul's hammering that because it's so important that we would understand that. And then he has a second thing. There's also something that he does have for us to do. Verse 18 tells us that he has given us the ministry of reconciliation, not to make it happen, but to spread the word that it already has. Verse 19 repeats that we have the message of reconciliation. Verse 20 tells us that we are Christ's ambassadors, meaning that we are his representatives before others. That's what an ambassador is. The ministry of reconciliation that we have been given is not to tell the world to make peace with God, but that God has already made peace with the world. That's what it's about. That's why we don't call the gospel good advice to follow to make your way to God. We call it good news to accept. Because it's what he's done. Not what we have to do. Then Paul wraps up this little section at the beginning of chapter 6 with a word of urgency. Verse 1, as God's co-workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. In other words, don't have God's grace and mercy provided and offered to you and just let it pass by or just be casual toward it. Recognize it for what it is. Jump into it. Jump after it. For, he says, in the time of my favor, this is quoting Isaiah, I heard you, and in the day of salvation I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. I love what Paul's doing here. He is giving us this beautiful and succinct synopsis of the gospel. Look at the way he says it in verse 21, chapter 5. It says, God made him who had no sin, Jesus, perfect in our world, no sin, to be sin for us, to take our sin on himself as he went to the cross to be a representative for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, so that we might take his righteousness on ourselves while he took our sin on himself. That's the gospel right there in a very succinct, straightforward manner. Then he tells us that those of us who have put our trust in Christ are ambassadors for Christ. We have the ministry of reconciliation. We have a responsible responsibility to go and to make that message known to other people. And then he makes it clear that the door to that reconciliation with God is wide open. It's wide open. You don't have to do something to open it. Why? Because God reconciled you to him, not the other way around. So if you have any inclination whatsoever, it's because God has placed his reconciling power on you. And I hope that you've walked through that door. Said, God, thank you for reconciling me, for doing what is necessary to reconcile me to you. But it's very possible. In fact, it's extremely likely. In fact, I have no doubt whatsoever that there are people listening right now, 
whether in person or at home or in moon or in classic, who have never taken the step of receiving the reconciliation that God is providing. That we've never come to the place where our hearts have been transformed in nature. Where we're not the new creation. But you can be. Because the work of reconciliation has been in, not by you. You say, well, I haven't done enough to get God's faith. You don't have to. Because he's done it all. You simply need to receive it. The work of reconciliation is about that sin being taken out of the way. It's about the work of the cross where Jesus died on your behalf as your substitute standing in your place. So, if you're in a circumstance where you know that you haven't been made a new creation because you've never confessed your sin to God, you've never sought His forgiveness, or maybe you're just not sure, I don't want to encourage you to take that step. A step I, w- I want to help you through even now. So if you please just bow your heads where you are. And listen for God's moving in your heart, which you perhaps have already heard, and so you want to take this step. And you can do so simply by telling God, thank you for what He has done, acknowledging his goodness, and doing what is necessary just by humbling yourself before God and asking that that work of Him taking our sin, of becoming sin for us, would be effective in our lives. So you can just simply pray something like this, Dear God, thank You for Your amazing love. And in this moment, like I've never felt before, Your love is compelling me to take the step of bowing my heart and my mind and my life before you, of giving my life to you, of experiencing the transformation that only you can provide. I want to be made new. I want to be a new creation. I want the old to be gone. I want to receive the reconciling work and power that you have done and provided for me. So I confess my sin before you. I ask that the forgiveness that you have offered and promised, I ask that you would provide that in my case. And I'm putting my trust in you. It's that simple. And if that's what you've prayed, it's done. It's, it's settled. It's taken care of. That's the beauty of it all. That is the good news that we come to accept. You have been changed. You have been transformed. And you should rejoice in that. Heaven's rejoicing in that. You can celebrate it as well. We would love to celebrate with you. And so what I would ask of you 
is that if you're in person, that on that connect card that you would write, I trusted Jesus today. And when you turn that in, that that would be written on there that we might be able to rejoice with you, to celebrate with you. We'd love to help you in your journey. If you're listening online or you just have some, some virtual means to turn in your decision, we'd encourage you to do so, right? At the, you can do that also on the Connect card virtually or right above where you're watching this video online if you're using Vimeo on our website. There's a little button right there. It says, I've trusted Jesus. Click on that, and it'll give you the next steps to follow. Or call, or text. We would just love to hear from you. You know, what God has been doing in your life to transform your heart and your mind in your life. Father, thank you that you love us so much that you've took the step before we indicated any interest at all so that we might have the blessing of life in you. We celebrate that now in the name of Jesus. Amen.